Employee of the Month. Here's your host, Katie Lazarus. You may never have heard of Homer Steinwise, but you've definitely heard him. One of the greatest drummers in the world, Homer Funkyfoot Steinwise, plays mainly with Sharon Jones and the Dab Kings. And he's also worked with Mark Ronson, Charles Bradley, Amy Winehouse, and Enzo. Oh, sorry, Enzo's not a rock star. He's Homer's dog. But doesn't Enzo sound like he could be the next big pop singer? Meet you downstairs in the bar and hurt. Your rolled up sleeves in your skull t-shirt. You say, why did you do with him today? And sniff me out like I was tagged excited to be sitting with Homer Steinwise and his dog Enzo. So if you hear a little rustling around, that is because Enzo um, is uh, sitting right on top of the video equipment. Usually my dog Lady is the one doing that, but this time we have Enzo doing that. Um, Homer Steinwise, you, you are known as, as a one of the world's greatest drummers, and I know that that is uh, embarrassing to hear when you're sitting next to someone, um, <clears throat> specifically in, in funk um, do you identify as a drummer? Uh, yeah, uh, I've been doing it for about 20 years, so uh, pretty much the drummer, live the life of a drummer. I want to start a little bit of the beginning and actually start with your family. I wanted to talk about uh, Alex Steinwise, your grandfather, a mm-hmm. little bit, um, because he he did the first, what would be now known as cover art yeah. for, for albums at Columbia Records, um, and really created the genre. He even has a, uh, the Steinwise scrawl. Yeah, yeah, he created a typeface and he was the first man to have the idea to put artwork, original artwork, on album covers. It's which is pretty amazing. It's unbelievable. Yeah. And I, I know that you draw as well. Um, and I was, I was curious, you know, you certainly had a window into the music business as well because he's doing it at Columbia and, and setting the stage yeah. for it. I was just wanted to hear about your relationship with him. Well, he worked at Columbia before I was born and he retired when he was really young. But when I was growing up, I always kind of knew that what he did and was around, and we, you know, visited him in his house in Florida. And so I was always inspired by him. And when I was younger, I wanted to just be a visual artist and he gave me his airbrushes and like I used to just like hang out with him and ask him a bunch of questions. And that was that was basically that. And then when I started making records, I would ask him all the questions about how he made this, how he made that. And he was always happy to try and answer me. It's really, it's really special. I, it was funny to, I was reading his New York Times obit and then reading a, a bit about him. And it, I always find these things so funny because they talked about how he was not, however, uh, responsible for the inner flap jacket. He was responsible for the outside jacket, yeah. <laughs> but not the inner flap. Do you ever feel like, I, I want to get that for him? <laughs> I want to yeah. trademark that inner flap for Well, him. it's funny because all those little details are actually was a really big deal. He always had this, like, kind of, this weird relationship with um, someone else in the family who was part of um, the creation of, who, who, like, had the patent on the actual box for the cover. 
Mm. I don't know exactly how to explain it, but basically he was always like slightly disgruntled that like he didn't get this one patent on this one aspect of it. And yeah, I always kind of felt like even though he got recognized as like this, uh, as like the kind of forebearer of all this stuff, he didn't quite quite get his like credit where it's due like monetarily. So maybe mm. if he did get that inner flap, maybe maybe he would have had his like uh, had his cake and ate it too. I guess <laughs> he is this kind of like iconic figure in my in my book and stuff. But like yeah, growing up, it always felt like he was always like a little bit like just not quite. He didn't quite get like his credit where he wanted it and then like when he actually when he got older and more recently there's this book written about him but growing up it was always just like no one recognizes me as for my art and they only like my covers and all this stuff so there is those really interfamily dynamics that are that are you know that's just the way it is it is the way it is but it also is so uh, profoundly relevant for this because here he is an artist who's also collaborating in these business ventures. Yeah. And so he's he's lending these beautiful artistic talents of his his own to create these covers that um, sell other people's work and and there is an anonymity there and and a letting go. Yeah. Um, that's inevitable in commerce as an artist. Yeah, that's true. Now, your parents were they musicians? Uh, so my parents were musicians. They're classical pianists, and they met in. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> sorry. Say it again. They're classical pianists, and they met in uh, <laughs> in music school, and uh, <laughs> um, I think that's the proper pronunciation. <laughs> no, it is the proper pronunciation. I'm I'm eleven years old at yeah. best. Um, and you know, when they graduated from music school, they ended up teaching, and my dad was always kind of like. Like, he was, like, a songwriter when he graduated school, and that was his thing, but he never quite broke into the industry. So he ended up not doing songwriting for a living, but he has all these kind of amazing songs that I grew up listening to, and it's it's really great. I've actually been working with him over the years and, you know, performing some of his songs and recording them. What's the, what's the um, for lack of a better word, you know, genre or... or the feel of the songs of my dad's stuff Mm -hmm. well in the 70s it was like this classic singer songwriter like real like positive about life style stuff just like i don't know how to explain it like like everyone's real happy and it's about like kind of like love and happy and affectionate it's just it's kind of soft singer songwriter stuff like real emotional and then as he got older he got into writing for like musicals and stuff which he still does and he got and he's got a knack for that so he started doing like you know, musical theater for like off Broadway productions and stuff. That's awesome. Yeah, it's so interesting too because these you you really got a sense of two very different um, paths in the music industry that are also I don't want to say archetypes but they are are very common. One not common. I mean not but meaning one goes into business. Your grandfather goes into the business aspect of it. Yeah. Um, and there's frustration there as an artist. And your father is a real artist at heart there and decides to do his business in a different way. So, okay, he's going to make money from something else so that he can really yeah. enjoy this for the sake of enjoying this. Yeah, I think so. It is a nice perspective to have. And I think my dad, whether or not he planned that, he was always like, his music was always a source of inspiration to me because you could feel that he loved doing that. And so it was just like, I just remember growing up and like, Growing up in the 80s, too, he had all these really great synthesizers that were kind of, like, just coming out. And those sounds kind of were just amazing all the, all the time in his little home studio, like, kind of recording, like, orchestras with just, like, one synth. 
That's amazing. Yeah. And your your mom? Um, my mom is also a piano player. And uh, <laughs> she, uh, when she graduated, she was teaching lessons as well. And she kind of, when she, when she started having kids, she decided to kind of stay with, you know, be a mother. But then when she was in her 40s and I was a little kid she went back to films she went back to school to study film because that's what she always really wanted to do so cool I like her already (laughs) yeah she's like she's a wild character and she uh, she let me think sorry she uh, worked as an editor for a while and now she works in the family business as a jeweler but um, she plays like ragtime piano all the time I grew up like with my mom playing like Scott Joplin in the house and she used to play at the school Christmas fair where she'd be the piano player playing like Scott Joplin stuff and it's pretty awesome. Well, who are the other influences you had? I mean you have such a formidable eclectic family where each person really has their own taste. Yeah. Um, but I was curious outside of your family were there other influences as well? Musically. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Just in terms of drugs and alcohol. Yeah, yeah. no musically. <laughs> uh, well when I was uh, you know when I was like 11 or 12 I started getting into music outside of my house which was like in the house was the Beatles and like Stevie Wonder and then like my parents playing piano all the time and then like I got into like Nirvana and all that stuff and then I started hanging out with these kids at my school that were really into jazz where and, were you growing up uh, in New York City oh wow at Friends Seminary this like private Quaker school I live near your school I oh, think yeah. uh, 15th street yeah yeah I lived on 15th oh yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah. it's really it's, cute yeah it's a cute little place and there's this whole jazz thing there and immediately I was just I had started playing drums when I was pretty young and I was in the jazz band and that became like the kids who were older than us became my big source of inspiration they were into jazz and funk and soul and we wanted to be like them, so we started like imitating them. Jazz was huge when we were kids. It started, was it? I think so. I mean, it, see, it, it today it feels that it's in a decline to me. Yeah. But and I'm I'm a novice and not huge yeah. in the music industry, but um, but yeah, it it still had some clout. Yeah. Um, in a way that I I I don't know is that is that true that it's diminished or or uh, I don't know I don't I don't really follow jazz that much anymore. And when I was a kid, it did feel huge to me, but. I feel like maybe that's just because right. I was a kid. Right, Okay, so my perspective may be based on that. But I remember going to Smalls. Yeah, Smalls was a hot, hot yeah. club back in the day. Yeah, you know what I mean? That yeah. was just the era, I yeah. guess. Um, and it was really fun to go there. Yeah. Um, so what were you playing as a kid? Were you playing piano? Uh, my parents taught me piano, but I never was quite... I never, like, was that into it. And then... Um, uh, went for Christmas, even though I'm Jewish, we still celebrated Christmas. And I remember I, uh, they were like, we want you to play an instrument, you can choose. And I was like, I want to play conga drums. So for Christmas, they got me a set of conga drums. And it's a weird instrument to start playing because it's just like... What, do you remember what you saw it or how, did you just like the name conga? Or? Uh, I, well, I remember I went to a jazz concert at my sister's school, a friend's seminary, which I ended up going to when I, before I went there. Right before I went there, I went to this concert, and there was a band, and they had this conga drummer, and for some he must have been really great, and I think he was, but, like, for, for me, it just had the tone, like, just, like, I kind of, like, it stepped out from everything else. I just focused on that. And also, like, I looked at the drummer, and I thought that he was cheating because he was using his feet, and the conga player was just using his hands, so I was like, okay, that's the one I want. Maybe that is at the root of the minimalism, too. Yeah. <laughs> Um, that's amazing. Okay, so they, they got you conga drums and you were off and running? Yeah, I was off and running with that. And 
I actually took lessons with the guy who was in that band who kind of inspired me to play. What was that band? Uh, it was the jazz band at my sister's okay. school. <laughs> but, okay, got it. <laughs> but he was pretty serious, and he taught me all the kind of African conga patterns. And then I guess I don't know what happened, but eventually I was just like, okay, I want to play regular drums. Like, there's no use to the conga. It's just got, <laughs> I guess they just got boring. I'm not sure, but I, like people wanted me to play in their band, and you couldn't just play congas. They needed a drummer. <laughs> so then I switched. I also wonder if it's adolescence, you know, wanting yeah. to fit in. <laughs> yeah, maybe it was a little bit of that. But I remember too, like when I started to play regular drums, my first teacher just taught me in a pad with sticks for like a year. For some reason, I stuck with that, even though it sounds real boring to me now. Like, how can you learn on just a plastic pad and sticks? But, but maybe that was the essential part because you know I was thinking of friends who are cartoonists. They're incredible artists usually, and mm-hmm. they can do all these very elaborate or impressionist-type paintings and really serious, uh, intricate drawings. But they choose now to do cartoons that are quite simple. Yeah. And I think there's something about going back to the basics and learning all of these things and then making a conscious choice later as to whether you um, make it even more intricate or pare down. Yeah, I think you're right about that. I mean, I think to me, a lot of the great artists in time like have all the skills to do whatever they want and then they're able to do some things that are really simple. I mean, it's a conscious choice at yeah. that point. It's more deliberate, yeah. you know. And in fact, probably so conscious that you don't think about it. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I'm not saying that I'm like this great artist or anything, but I'm saying I think that's in the intention of any artist is to be able to do what he wants and then be able to control it. Yes. And do it in a, <laughs> in a way that kind of uh, kind of works for your medium. So in high school, were you playing in your own band? Um, yeah, I had my own band. My first band was called Three Year Old Girls. <laughs> I'm glad I didn't get that tattoo because I was considering it at the time. And then... Uh, How'd that help with the dating? Um, it, it wasn't good. I wasn't dating at that time. Yeah. I was pretty young. That was a rock band. And then I started playing in these soul funk things. The first band that had a name was called uh, Poly Six and the Cacalactic Quartet. And we actually played some gigs and we did pretty good. That was good for the dating. And then... Uh, and then we turned into the Mighty Imperials. And then, like, shortly after that, I was, like, playing with the Dap Kings and doing stuff like that. Let's talk about your transition to Dap Tones. Like, how did you hook up with them? Okay, well, I don't I don't want to get too complicated here, but Dap Tone used to be called Desco Records. Yes, Desco Records yeah. was the original. And name. that was Gabe Roth and Philip Lehman. And okay. they ran this little Funk 45 label. And we had, um, we had heard of them through just a random source. And who's we? Uh, me and my band, my friend Leon, and we had a band called Poly Six and the Cacalactic Quartet. And uh, say that one more time in English. Poly Six and the Cacalactic Quartet. Okay. Um, and let me think. We uh, we okay. I'm just gonna try and make this real quick. But basically, we met Philip Lehman, who owned this label, and he said that he was looking for bands for his label. But they wanted like funk and soul bands, but they couldn't be like too funky. Like, yeah. Not no Parliament funkadelic, which is what we really liked. So Leon heard this news and was like, "Listen, we can we can maybe get a record out, but we can't. We got to get rid of the Parliament funkadelic aspect of our music." So we kind of honed it towards this label, which was a little bit geared short towards like funk forty fives and obscure funk. So we were just discovering this as we were kind of trying to make this music. Was that frustrating, though, to get rid of what's giving you joy? Uh, yeah, it was. At the time, it was uh, It was funny because we were, like, we, we just wanted to, like, kind of make records and, like, play music. And we didn't know what the hell we were doing. We were just, like, 
being geared in all these different directions. And these guys had a really like cool taste. And when we started hearing this music, we were freaking out on it. But we we were like, but why don't they like this? And we started to like kind of dissect it and stuff. And then we're like, okay, we'll leave that part out of our repertoire when we send them a demo. You know, so they heard our demo. It was just like two songs that that were more in this certain style, and they liked it. And then we started kind of developing our style from that. So at first it was a little bit like, why are we not playing like the stuff that, you know, you're saying that gives us joy. But then we started taking, like, I think it, in the end it kind of honed us to the musicians that we are, where we kind of are, became a little bit more critical on what we were listening to and what we were trying to do. And that sort of prepares you for being accessible. Yeah, I think so, yeah. I mean, it was like, it's not like we sold out or anything. We're like, okay, we're not going to play what we love. We just like kind of like shifted a little bit, if you know what I yes, mean. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And, and and those small shifts the, can be, you know, instrumental. Pun yeah. intended. Sorry, that <laughs> no. was terrible. <laughs> <laughs> no, for sure, because it's uh, it's like, I, I feel like we were headed in the direction of a jam band at the time. We, we like to jam out, which there's nothing wrong with that. But the older I get, the more, you know, I got, I became like less into that jam thing and more into a certain other thing, which is this kind of retro soul, which has a whole different dimension to it. And I'm glad that like we didn't end up as a jam band maybe because if we didn't meet these guys, like I feel like that was, that's where we were going. You know? But it is, it is um, curious because, you know, Funk uh, started in R&B, started yeah. in the 50s, and you, you guys have this real classic sort of Philadelphia feel to you and yeah. um, have really stayed loyal to that tradition. Yeah. Um, and I, I'm just comparing it to, to more um, modern uh, versions of, of R&B. Yeah, for sure. Um, and you, you guys have, have really stayed in, in the tradition and in the minimalism that we sort of spoke about before in the yeah. music. yeah. Um, so, okay, so how did you meet um, Gabe and, and um, who was the other, Mr. Uh, Lehman? Philip, yeah, Philip, Philip Lehman. Um, Lehman Brothers. Well, we basically... They couldn't go with that name because yeah. that was taken. We basically just sent them this demo. My friend had met one of them when he described that we shouldn't be listening to this, we should be listening to that. And we just submitted the demo through the con- through my friend. He heard the tape and they just like called us up and they had us to the studio and we recorded, like, the first day we met them, I think. And they bought us pizza. And we were like, this is awesome. We were, like, 15. We were like, they bought us pizza. They're recording our songs. And we went home to our parents, and they were, like, super skeptical. They're like, wait, you can't just give away your music for pizza. So that was, like, the beginning of that. But, you know, we started to work out a little record deal, and they put out a 45. And, and this is when you were 15 years old. Yeah. It's incredible. Yeah, it was pretty crazy. I mean, even though it's this kind of small New York independent thing to us, it was just like exactly what we like wanted to be doing. So we ended up making a record for that label, which never came out because the label like disbanded and turned into Daptone, and Daptone eventually put it out. But that must have been so so painful at the time, though. <laughs> yeah, it was a bummer. For some, it wasn't as big of a deal as you'd think, though, because we were just like, you know, none of us really were that like. We, we weren't, like, how you get when you're in your 20s and your 30s and you, like, have to, like, get this album out and you have to do this. We were just, like, hanging out on, on this people's stoops and listening to boomboxes. And when our music, when we could put our music in the cassette player, we were like, this is awesome. And when they are like, oh, you're, they're not going to put your record out, it's like, okay, whatever, we'll make more records. We weren't that career-oriented at the Absolutely. Time. And, that, and just hearing it for yourself was enough. Yeah, it that was, was enough. It was yeah. still pure fun. Yeah, and we got to play some shows and... 
they flew us to London for some shows. And oh we were, my gosh! Yeah, it was pretty. It was pretty hilarious because in England they they were kind of eating us up because we were like the sixteen year old funk genius guys, <laughs> and we were just like playing our normal set, and they loved us because there's a scene for funk forty fives in England at the time, and we were these like young kids playing it right. So it was it was funny. It was like a really cool experience. You know, it's just like super random. Absolutely, you put Jufros on the map. Yeah, <laughs> huge legacy. So I continued to play in bands while I was in school, but I was just like looking at my options. And by the time I graduated, I got a degree in philosophy. I um, I was like playing. I was on tour, and I was when I right when I got out of school, and I was making money from that. I was like, this is a decent career. I keep doing this. You were making money from doing music right when you got out of college. Yeah, it was easier. You weren't making yeah. money from philosophy. Exactly. So then I just kept going with it, and I was still, I was still like, you know what? I might do some other things, but I'm doing this now. And then eventually, like. I was 25, I was like 26. I was like, okay, I'm a musician. This is it. <laughs> I'm done. I'm happy with my career now. It took me a while to be like, this is what I'm going to do. I wasn't one of those people who was like, this is all that I, this is all that I ever want to do. But I'm happy I ended up doing this. Well, you have other talents. I mean, you, you are a lovely draw, drawer. Yeah, I like to draw. And um, I was, I was, <laughs> isn't that, what, what is the word? Yeah, I'm a drawer. A drawer. <laughs> You're a lovely artist. You know, you you have real you have real ability as an artist, and um, you love food. Yeah, I do. So you you did have other passions that you've really you know they're hobbies, but they're things that you're really good at. Yeah, thank you. Um, yeah, I've actually cultivated my my love of cooking and food over the years because you know you get breaks as a musician. So I think uh, about three years ago, I I had a break and I uh, saw a wanted ad on Craigslist for a baker of pies and thighs and. I worked there for a year just baking just to like see what that was like. So I like to do other things for sure. I could envision myself if this ever dries up and no one wants me to play drums ever again, I could definitely like work in a kitchen because that's pretty fun. So talk to me a little bit about going on tour because I, I mentioned to you like when I was doing stand-up, I, I quit uh, and that was the real break for me was that I knew that I didn't want to be on the road when I was 50, mm -hmm. and I found it very lonely. Yeah. Um, I wanted to hear what it's like touring as a musician, because you're with a whole band, and that sounds so fun and also just terrifyingly claustrophobic. Yeah, I mean, it's fun for, like, two weeks, like, the first time you do it. And then it's like, okay, this is what it is. And if you're the type of person who, like, really likes to, like, have late nights and, like, you know, party a lot, it is fun, because you get to do that every night, basically. But for me, I'm more like a homebody, and I have my girlfriend and my dog at home. And even though you're around a bunch of people you like, you end up missing like the things at home. So I'm not a huge fan of touring. I love playing the shows, but then you sit around for every other hour of the day waiting to play the show. So it's not my favorite thing to do. I try and stay off the road, but I'll tour when I have to. And do you sub in when, when you can't do it? Uh, yeah. Yeah, I have a bunch of subs. Each one of the bands I play in, like, will have, like, a sub to the point where, like, I no longer play in those bands because, like, the subs have basically taken over. But with Sharon, like, I'm, like, I still play this, the, the tours and then eventually I'll be, like, okay, now it's, now it's time for the sub to come on. When, you know, when you need. So yeah. so Sharon Jones and the Dab Tones is, is your main... Dab Kings. Dab Kings. I just yeah. made you into your record label. Yeah. So Sharon Jones and the Dab Kings is your main band. Yeah. But you have other bands as well? Yeah. What are the other bands? Um, well, Charles Bradley and the Extraordinaires. It was actually Charles Bradley and the Manahan Street Band. And the Extraordinaires is the road band. 
then Lee Fields and the Expressions, and they're all basically the same genre. And then, so those are the three bands that would be on the road that I would be like, have to find a sub for. But then I do a lot of projects in the studio, and I have my own studio now where I just kind of, I might, I might play on it or produce it or write a song and not necessarily have anything to do with the live performance, just like the studio versions. What is producing? Because you'll see a zillion names on the label, Mm -hmm. um, or even on a song, you know, there'll be 15 people involved in a compilation that's three minutes, and as a a total novice outsider, I'm like, who are all these people and what are they doing? Yeah, it's. I mean, it's a funny thing, producing. It's basically like the person who makes the thing happen, like the person accountable, like when they're like, all right, we need the mastered version of the song we need the final song to to press onto a cd like the producer is like responsible for getting it there so the producer could do anything from like write the music and and play all the instruments to just like make sure that the right musicians are in the right place and that there's a good recording engineer and just like make sure everything happens so it's it's a pretty wide range of jobs generally producing nowadays for me is is involves like kind of listening to the music that someone brings in or developing music yourself and then kind of honing in on what's important about it, recording it and then mixing it and then getting it out there, whether hiring people to do that or doing it yourself. And how do you ensure, I'm going to go back to <clears throat> drumming for a second, how do you ensure that you stand out enough? I mean, the thing about being part of an ensemble is that you need to be part of this group. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, to ensure your livelihood, you have to stand out enough that people are like, we need Homer. Like, even when you talk about getting subs yeah. for being the road, you still need them to say, oh, but ultimately we need Homer. Yeah. What are ways that you ensure that people remember Homer? Um, that's a good question. I probably should work on that a little more. Um, <laughs> well, no, you, I mean, you you clearly do it because, like, you know, Mark Ronson gets interviewed and he, and he t- talks yeah. about how wonderful it was to work with you. Yeah. So, I mean, you, you are doing it. I was just wondering if there are, obviously it's not a conscious thing, yeah. but, but it is a necessary one yeah. as a to maintain one's livelihood. Yeah, I think that the I think the key is to kind of having your own voice, and then if you if you are able to work, then um, your voice will come through. You know, I think of my drumming as like as we were saying with like painting and stuff. I often think about it as like like you know, there's lots of drummers out there who could do a perfect. There's a lot of painters out there who do a perfect painting of something, um, and that's not me. Like I don't do like this to the mint like this metronome like if you need that like you call someone else but if you want someone who does a more abstract version who puts their own spin on it like i'm one of the guys you can call who has a style who has a sound so i'm not your everything man you know there's drummers out there for that i'm like a specific like oh we want something kind of funky or something kind of old school or something kind of different then then i'll get the call for that if you know if they know who i am (laughs) and as a drummer just because of the particular role you play in the band there is a lot of anonymity yeah to it like the the drummers that i know are like keith moon yeah and sometimes i think i know him who he is because of him partying and driving yeah. a motorcycle in a hotel room or whatever it is yeah, you know? for sure. um more than because i i distinctly know their music yeah do you ever crave validation for someone to be like oh that was that was the drummer yeah i mean sometimes i think that I like being kind of in the background and being like the support. I think being the front man or being this the name is kind of has a lot of pressure to it. And uh, I like kind of just like, you know, being able to work and do what I do and not necessarily have to take the, the fall when an album is bad or I don't need the credit when it's good. If it's good, I know it's good, you know. 
I also wanted to ask about like worst painful gigs because I remember you were going to do the Thanksgiving Day Parade and it was so cold. <laughs> I was like, I can't believe they have to like play drums, you know, the, yeah. play music in this weather. It's it's one thing to just do the sort of uh, yeah. the waving yeah. um, of the Miss America kind of waving, but like you have to work in that, that those yeah. conditions. It was actually, we actually were lip syncing. Oh, you were? Okay, yeah. so now I don't feel as bad because yeah. you were doing it was actually, Millie Vanilli. It was actually really funny because the music started and I wasn't even sitting on the drum set. I was waving because they didn't give us a cue. So if you were watching TV at the time, you could see the, the drum fill and then me running behind the drum set and then starting the song after. the. So it's kind of funny. Like You could definitely tell we're lip syncing. I did want to ask you a little bit about Amy Winehouse. Yeah. Um, did you become close with her? Um, not very close, but, you know, we toured for, like, two or three weeks together, so we hung out for sure, and we did some work together in the studio, and she was, she was real cool, like, you know, like, a good hang, but I think she, at the time, like, she was transitioning from, like, drinking a lot to starting doing some heavy drugs, and you could see that it was kind of troubling to watch that go down. What is it like working with someone who is, is hurting themselves? And, you know, I mean, everyone grapples with this as an adult. Like, it's very hard to be able to intervene in those situations, but it's also hard to, it's just hard because you can't, you're not really supposed to say anything, of course, Mm -hmm. um, in a professional setting in general. And I don't know, I was curious, in music, does that come up a lot where where people are abusing drugs or or drinking and and you're having to still work? Yeah, I mean, it's... I feel like part of being a musician is being around a lot of drugs and and alcohol and stuff, and it's kind of like part. It's just part of the game, and it's. Uh, I've never been so close to someone where I had to kind of like intervene or anything, but sometimes it's hard to watch that type of thing go down when you know it's like they probably should take a break from what they're doing and get better. And as you guys get more famous. And you have all these gigs and all these things to do and all these promotional things. How do you carve out time to like just play and work on music and and you know you know what I mean? Keep yeah. that time. Yeah, it's hard. I I spend a lot of my time carving out my time basically <laughs> because yeah, there's a lot. There's a, I have a busy schedule with different bands and stuff, and I'm basically just look to the look a couple months ahead and make sure that I have time to do that. Like I have a new studio and. Long Island City, Queens, and I'm just trying to make time to go over there. Homer Steinweiss, thank you so, so much. Enzo, thank you. Do you have anything you want to add to the conversation? I just like that there was pure silence. It was perfect. (laughs) (laughs) And there was nothing he'd like to add more, but he would like to take a nap. Homer, thank you so, so much. And I can tell everyone to go to Daptone Records to see your schedule. Yeah. Okay, terrific. Or go to homersteinwise.com. Schedule won't be there. But you can go to that website. And you can also see your dancing. Yeah, you can just hang out on the website. There's a lot of fun. It's about 10 years old, but it's kind of fun. It's absolutely delightful, (laughs) as are you. Thank you so, so much. Thank you very much. That's it for this episode of Employee of the Month. Thank you so much to Ian Mazov for being a wonderful sound engineer and trying to uh, make things sound better. Thanks to all of you for listening. Please go to employeeofthemonthshow.com to find out ways you can donate, get on the mailing list to find out about live tapings, and um, subscribe to the podcast. If you get a chance and you really liked an episode, please do leave us a uh, recommendation or a quote, whatever you want to call it, on iTunes. Um, Those are much appreciated and incredibly helpful. And otherwise, talk to you soon. I got a thing on